Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on the show, we aim to find out what is lost. Welcome to Wids Howling, a companion podcast to the Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. My name's Abu. I'm Brett. And Brett, we're back, baby. Another week, another Witcher episode. Yeah, happy holidays. How were yours? They were pretty good. It was nice to have some time off of work and... Uh, I also had some extra time to work on this script for today and to rewatch episode three, not once, not twice, but three times. Wow, no, <laughs> that's, that's commitment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, well, we will find out shortly why I really just watched this one time. Ooh, can't wait to get into it. Before we jump in, though, as always, Brett, a couple of housekeeping things to knock out. First and foremost, a reminder that today's episode will be spoiler-free in terms of the TV show. Fair warning, though, we will be referencing things from the books and the video games and the larger Witcher universe, so sprinkled throughout today's discussion, there will be light book spoilers and speculation from the video games and the larger universe. Also, we love to hear from our listeners, so email us, windshowlingpodcast at gmail.com. There are a lot of feelings going around about season two of The Witcher, and we'd love to hear yours. So email us, let us know what you think. And if you have questions about the lore, if you'd like us to cover a certain topic on this podcast, send us that too, and we'll try to include it in future episodes. And finally, a reminder that in these episodes, we'll start off with a quick summary, then we'll dive into our two key takeaways, talk about some larger themes, and finally, we'll wrap up by reviewing the episode and sharing our overall thoughts. So let's get into it. So, Brett, episode three, What is Lost, opens up with Siri continuing her training that we left off at the end of the previous episode with. She's got that wooden training sword, and she is whacking away at this training dummy, and she's struggling a bit. Finally, Geralt calls it quits and says that she's tired, she's not making any headway, and it's better if she rests. Let's go eat lunch. It's clear to us in this scene that she is really dedicating herself to her training and is finding herself frustrated that she maybe can't achieve what the witchers can. Yeah, and it's showing her determination and resiliency, which is great. Like, definitely want to see it. This is a good time to do it. Yeah. And yeah, the catching the sword maneuver that she's doing, I'm like, okay, you're striking it pretty well. I guess it's more coordination training, I suppose. Right, right. I imagine she's also struggling just because some of these maneuvers aren't meant for human bodies and human reflexes. Yeah, we need to tell her she's not in the anime. This is the live action one. <laughs> not as much show here. <laughs> right, right. Now, this opening scene wraps up with Siri having a series of visions. Clearly not a good vision. And when Geralt asks her what she just saw, she instead... Uh, walks off and asks what's for lunch. Yeah, this is going to be one of those things that people will take from the books because so much of Blood of Elves was Siri visions and what her visions were about. And we get it here, and she's very reticent, I guess would be the word. She's very reticent to tell Geralt about it. And that was something I don't fully remember if she was really from the books, but these visions, I, I like seeing it. I want to see these. This is where we start to see, or we saw a little bit in the first season, we really start to see, okay, something else is there. What are these visions with Siri? What is this going to be? Absolutely. It establishes her special abilities and her unique role in this story. Now, it's lunchtime in Kermorn, and they enter the main hall where Lambert has cooked up a meal for everyone. It was Lambert's day to cook. And 
This was a bit of a weird scene for me, and I see you had some thoughts written down here in our script as well. But basically, Lambert gives Geralt grief for Eskel's death and continues to joke around with Cohen here in the room. And uh, I don't know. The Witchers continue to give me the wrong vibes, and I know you feel pretty strongly about that too. Yeah, Lambert is telling these... He's just such an 80s like frat bro. And I don't remember if I said that last time, but he is. And he's telling these jokes. Hey, Cohen, what's this? And it's just it just did not hit with me at all. And for all the hate and all the stuff about Eskel, I know I don't hear anything about people talking about Lambert. I just don't I just don't like his character. And I know that's something at the end we'll really get into more in depth. But just all of the witchers and care more. And I was oh, my God, I was so excited that we we're going to get to care more. And. We're going to get to the Witchers. Oh, they're building this massive set. Oh, they're, they're not just going to have two or three episodes, like two or three chapters in the book. It's going to be a big thing. And just every time we're there, it's not a warm place for Siri. It's not a fun place to be. Everybody's kind of dragged down, which, again, I understand it's, it's the winter at Kermorin, But I just, it just didn't work for me for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I agree. My expectations were very similar to yours. I was very excited to see Kara Morin, to be introduced to the Witcher Bros, to feel that camaraderie between all of them. And we just don't get that. In particular, the thing that gets me about this scene is Lambert being such a douchebag to Geralt about losing Eskel. I don't get why he's doing that. They both lost a brother in that incident. It was obviously a situation that was out of Geralt's hands and he made a choice. Like They're all Witchers. They've all been on the path. They've all had to make tough choices, I'm sure. It's part of their job. It feels like a weird subplot to introduce here, to have this like Lambert blaming Geralt and the other witchers blaming Geralt for Eskel's death. I mean, they did see that he literally turned into a leshy, right? Like, <laughs> right. They've let them like, down in the laboratory <laughs> to see that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like a weird subplot that ultimately I feel like goes nowhere. Uh, so... I don't know. I agree with you. Lambert continues to rub me the wrong way in this show as well. We'll revisit and talk more about Care Morn and the Witchers later in our takeaways. But for now, let's fast forward to the next scene where Geralt is walking down the hall and we get an Eskel flashback. We get to see what Geralt and Eskel's relationship was like before the events of this show. We see a totally different Eskel. We see them joking around back and forth, and it's genuinely looks like a very positive interaction, which was nice to see. That is the relationship between Geralt and Eskel that I personally know from the games and the books. It's just when you're doing this in a flashback after he's the episode where he died, it's just almost like too little, too late. Like that scene would have been fine in the here and now when Eskel got back to Kermorin. And I know they were saying, oh, he was infected. Yeah. Well, then again, like then we're just not going to get that endearing Eskel. And then here we get the flashback, and these are also cases from a storytelling aspect. These are also cases from a storytelling aspect where flashbacks just don't work, or they didn't work for me. I can't say they didn't work for everybody. But flashbacks aren't easy to use, and in a case like this, I just think it's a little, it's too little too late. Yeah. And ultimately, in the very next scene, Geralt and Vesemir also decide it's too little too late for poor Treskel. Is that what we're calling him? We got to come up with a nickname for Tree Eskel. Yeah, I had Treskel in here. Treskel. I had Leshy Skull. Leshy Skull. Oh, I Leshy love that. Skull. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, some way to put it in there and poke the bear, I guess. Right, right. I love that. Basically, Vesemir has been trying to figure out ever since the last episode, ever since Eskel's death, what the heck happened. And Geralt convinces him that enough is enough. And Eskel deserves some peace. Let him rest. What I did like is Vesemir is clearly taking Eskel's death much harder than perhaps the other witchers are. And I liked that the show is continuing to reinforce this idea that he really is the father figure for these other young witchers. He's the one that effectively raised them. He's the one that trained them, prepared them. And he's clearly taking this hard. He basically lost a child here. Yeah, this was good. It was good to see more detective work as Geralt tries to figure out what it is. Vesemir's trying to figure out. He's very determined to do it. 
And yeah, th- these are these are the good scenes. These are the scenes to really learn about the characters and really get in. Oh man, this is a band of brothers amongst the younger ones, and this is this fatherly figure. And this was this was another good point too, for sure. Yeah, agreed. And the next scene back at Eratusa, Tysaia is writing down the names of the mages who died on the hill, including the final name that she's scribbling on this little plaque here is Yennefer of Vangerberg, who, of course, we as the viewer know is alive. Tysaia at this moment has clearly given up hope and is trying to come to terms with Yennefer's death and thus writes her name down. And this is a minor change from the books, actually. It's a good change. It might have hit more, even though I, I don't know if anybody really would have believed that Yen was actually dead. But maybe if we hadn't seen Yen alive, that some people might have been like, oh, because yeah, I actually counted. I stopped and counted. Now, if I'm wrong, please let me know. Somebody <laughs> out there. But I paused it and counted the 14 names. And if I remember correctly from the books, Triss Marigold's like whole almost identity to herself is she was the 14th on the hill. She was named because they thought she was dead. And there were 14 names on that monument, but obviously only 13 died because Triss was on there. And so that was something there that I'm like, okay, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. But to Triss's character, like there were times throughout the book, she would say in her head, Triss Marigold, you're the 14th on the hill, like almost in a derogatory manner or self-defeating manner. Like you should be dead. You should be the 14th on the hill. Like it's almost even a survivor's guilt that she didn't die on there because her name was there. Yeah. And so they're taking that away from Triss's character in the show. And it's again, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but. I'm not the biggest Triss fan, but that was the one thing that I actually liked about Triss was she was the 14th on the hill. She was this hero of Sodden that everyone thought was dead. So it's a, it's an interesting choice, but, you know, it's, it's not bad. I think it's fine. I agree with your assessment there. It's a small enough choice that I don't think it's detrimental or it will change Triss's character too much. Yeah, it's not character defining. Exactly. But I do think it was a big part of her character. If, if I can talk out of both sides of my mouth right there. Yeah. <laughs> Which I will, because no, no, it's no, our I, podcast. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, we can say whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> yeah. Continuing our adventures here in Eratusa, the show then moves on to a scene where Istrid is testifying before the Brotherhood about the Battle of Sodden. And basically, there's a lot of politics at play here. Stragobor also takes this moment to be an asshat and hate on the elves, which he thinks are a huge problem. Yeah, and I I love that they've expanded Istrid and Stregobor. Istrid's awesome. I love the actor. I love his character. Everything about Istrid Same. is just great. Stregobor, though, Stregobor's a bit too mustache-twirling villain for me. Yeah. He's just so, like you say, <laughs> now he's racist against the elves. He's just very much this, I mean, obviously everyone's trying to grab power, so I'm not going to say a sorcerer trying to grab power is bad because every single one (laughs) is trying to do that, whether good or bad. But yeah, just the way he is, is just like, oh, this guy's the worst. And I mean, we're obviously supposed to hate him, so good job well done. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm loving what the show has done with Istrid. I love his expanded role in the story. Stregobor also feels a little one note. There's a scene later on that is perhaps a bit more sympathetic to him. But yeah, I, I agree. Overall, he seems fairly one note and very easy to hate for sure. In the middle of this council meeting, actually, Yennefer shows up. She just barges through the door and Tysaia, again, Mayana Burring, does some incredible acting here. But just to see this person that she had written off as dead at this point, literally just a scene ago, walking through the door, it's an emotional moment. And Tessaia explains privately to Yen, as they're catching up, that her and Vilgefortz are basically trying to seize power from Arturius, who is losing his grip on the Brotherhood. And Vilgefortz and Tessaia are trying to angle their way in. A lot of politics at play. They're trying to take the seat of power here in the Brotherhood. And I will say, I enjoyed this scene. Beyond just the fantasy world of the Witcher and the beautiful family elements between Geralt and Ciri that have attracted me to the story and to the universe, politics is another thing that always drew me to the world of the Witcher. And it's nice to 
get scenes like this, where we see the politics of the world sort of at play and people making these moves against each other to grab for power, for influence, to take each other down. It, it sprinkles in some of that. I know I'm going to get hate for saying this, but it sprinkles in some of what also made Game of Thrones, early Game of Thrones, really interesting was the politics. So I'm glad to see it here. Yeah, it'll be interesting to bring that up with something to talk about maybe where Netflix wants the show <laughs> or what they kind of want to do with it. Because, yeah, it's this is good. It's good. And I, I'll tell you what, if they do more of it, they'll get better at it. And unlike, like you mentioned Game of Thrones, unlike adapting George R. R. Martin's stuff, which was very, which was a lot easier to do, a lot of Sapkowski's writing is not that easy to adapt, mainly because it's not, it wasn't written in the English language. So there's a lot of stuff that can be lost in translation. But yeah, this, when, when the show slows down, it can be really good. And as evidenced by A Grain of Truth, the opener to this season, it can be great. And so when they do this and they slow it down with the Witchers and we get those moments between Geralt and Ciri, between Geralt and Vesemir, and now we get the espionage, if you want to call it that, and the skullduggery, <laughs> it, can, it can be good. And in this episode, this did stand out to be like, hey, this is actually kind of interesting. Oh, there's a little bit going on here. And then, yeah, Jennifer's going to have to actually take a back seat and not claim her glory or not accept credit and give it to the man. These two women have to go, yeah, the man has to get the credit. <laughs> You think you think that was on purpose? I think that was intentional for sure. But both Tysaia and Yennefer having to sort of live in Vilgefort's shadow. He gets to take the credit for winning Sodden. Okay, yeah. And what I like about it is this actually does tie into the books because Vilgefort's, what we know, we weren't there at Sodden in the books. Right? It was all done after the fact. Vilgefort's led the battle. Vilgefort's was the hero of Sodden. He led the mages. And so it's almost you take this and go, oh, maybe that's how it might have actually happened in the books. I mean, it didn't, but we can at least think like, oh, that's a way that it could have happened to where this is a truth, if you will, as opposed to a fact. Absolutely. I think it fits snugly within the lore of the, the books and what we know from it. Now, the show moves on to another key location this season, Sintra. And here in Sintra, Philavadril and Francesca are having a little discussion as we see elven refugees continue to flood into the city. Philavandril is basically expressing some doubts about why the humans would help. Nothing is free with the humans. At what cost are we accepting their help? Why are we allying with them? Basically questioning this decision that Francesca has made. And Francesca basically says, hey, this is what Ithlian wants. I was shown a vision. This is how we will establish a future for our race. And she tells Philavadril, my guy, go, eat meat, be happy. Which made me chuckle a little bit because in my mind, that's like the elven version of live, laugh, love. Eat meat, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I like the subversion, again, from the classical notion of elves where elves generally didn't eat meat, right? Like Tolkien elves, isn't that a thing? Yeah. That I remember from The Hobbit? Yeah. I don't like grain food. <laughs> yeah, I remember that movie. <laughs> but yeah, I like that here. It's just, no, go eat meat. They Like, they need meat. And I'm like, okay, that's what a humanoid, I guess you want to call it that, a carbon-based humanoid life form like this, you probably would need that protein of some sort. So yeah, I'm like that. It's just these aren't traditional elves that are just snacking on this lettuce and rabbit food. Right, right. No, No more weird white magical fluid for them to be <laughs> drinking either. They got real meat now. Yeah, it's none of that uh, the Luke Skywalker with the blue breast milk or whatever that was he had in The <laughs> yeah. Last Jedi. <laughs> right. So we jump back to Kaer Morhen in the following scene where Ciri is continuing to train on the training dummy and Lambert and Cohen walk up and uh, basically goad Ciri into trying the gauntlet. Lambert here says, iconic shit, like, quote, afraid to break a nail, princess end quote. And things like that continue to basically push Siri into trying this thing that is obviously dangerous for her and that she's perhaps not ready for. And this then leads to a montage later in the episode where she's trying and falling and trying and falling and trying and falling. 
and eventually succeeding. We'll talk about that in a little bit once we get to that scene. But to your point earlier about Care Morin and the vibes here and series experiences here, it continues to be antagonistic, which is very different from what we know from the books and the video games. Care Morin for Siri in the books was a safe place where she met these witchers who really sort of brought her into the fold and trained her willingly. And, uh, you know, honestly, I would go so far as to say loved and respected her, too, in some ways. All right. So it's a quarter to 1 p.m. I've been up since 4.30. <laughs> okay. So I'm a little bit mellowed out. So I'm not I'm not <laughs> going to go crazy in here. And I wouldn't do it anyway because it's not that big of a deal. I I hate this. I hate everything about this scene. They're not training. This is not training. This is taunting. This is goading. Yeah. This almost goes back to Nightmare of the Wolf when they just threw the trainee, the Witcher trainees out in the swamp and like half of them got fucking killed. This is not good. This is not loving. This is not caring. This is not helpful. Why am I supposed to like these Witchers? Why should I not look at all of them? And even Cohen, who was okay up to this point, why should I look at all? Actually, I think he does say something like somewhat encouraging. He's the only one that's even remotely encouraging at times. Yeah. But why am I supposed to like, especially Lambert? Like, why? Because I know him from the books? Because I know him from the games? We can't do that because we're not supposed to do that with Eskel. So, I yeah, I, I, I'm stumbling over the words because it's just so, I just hate it. I just don't like it. They're not likable. These witchers aren't likable. Kaer Morin isn't likable. How is Ciri getting better at this other than her own self-determination, which is great. We saw that already. But why is she going to care for them? Because they're Geralt's brothers? Why should she give one fucking ounce of care for these assholes? Yeah. To sum it up, in case I haven't been clear, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you make such a great point. We joked last episode about how all the witchers are portrayed as these like frat boy douchebags. This is just frat boy douchebag hazing the freshman, right? Like they're just hazing her and like forcing her to go through with this gauntlet and taunting her. And it is very, very hard to like any of these witchers so far in this show. I kept waiting for Geralt to take them into a room, slam the door, and pull out a sword to their throat. Because it is so <laughs> disrespectful to him, the way they're yeah. treating her. And here, it's just, I just don't understand why Geralt's not doing anything either. I just don't understand anything about this scene or so many of these characters in general. I just, I don't get it. I agree. It takes away from that sense of camaraderie that we really get. Even in the short time that Geralt spends at Kaer Morin in the books, we immediately get that sense of brotherly camaraderie. These witchers are a dying breed. They've been through hell together. They support each other. And we don't get that here. All right. The episode continues. And in the next scene, we attend a funeral. Geralt and Vesemir put Tree Leshy Eskel to rest and lay, lay him out on this pyre in a wolf's den, I suppose where uh, literal actual wolves arrive and presumably eat him. And this is a show creation. This sort of funeral wolf-eating ritual isn't a thing from the books, but this is apparently how witchers put their uh, fellow brothers to rest. And it also gives us this moment between Geralt and Vesemir. You and I always talk about how we like the small, quiet moments. This is... One of those where Kim Bodnia, I do want to call out the actor that plays Vesemir, does a really, really good job of portraying Vesemir's pain. He says, quote, I know you think I'm mad, but I need to know what happened. If it were your child, you'd be going crazy to figure it out. What you missed, what you could have done differently, end quote. And his like eye and cheek are kind of like, quivering here while he says this and it's clear he's sort of on the verge of tears as they're putting es Eskel to rest in this scene so I, I do want to call out and say that Kim Bodnia really did sell me on this scene and really sold me on Vesemir's pain as he is putting one of his children to rest yeah I thought it, I thought it was really good and the words are you know oh your child and that's really going to hit close to Geralt yeah moving on from the Witcher funeral in the next scene, we are back at Eretuza, 
and it's bath time. Yennefer is sitting at this foggy, very cozy, frankly, looking bath and is trying to use magic again and again and failing to. At that point, Triss and Sabrina and another sorcerer arrive and we uh, we get this like very cliched classic like TV trope where one of the characters says like a sort of mean thing and then there's an awkward silence and then it's like, ah, come here you and then they hug it out and everyone's fine. <laughs> I'll admit though, it actually kind of did work for me only in the sense of historically Yen and Sabrina were rivals. But yeah, this is this is something that it's it's going to eventually stop, right? Like that's going to be in a script and eventually some producer or somebody's going to look at it and be like, "No. No, I'm drawing the line. We're not doing this shit anymore." And then every time it goes into a script from now on, it's, people just get made fun of. So, hopefully, hopefully that's what it is. So, yes. I appeal to every writer out there, please for the love of all that you care for, get rid of this. I agree. Here, here. It's a trope. It's been around for far too long. And it's time we stop doing the old, ah, come here, you. Give me a hug. Let's hug it out. We've all been there. And I, for one, am proud to say I didn't fall for it. <laughs> so a after the little hug, the sorceresses decide to relax in this bath together. Uh, and all of them get in except for Triss. And Triss instead sort of dips her toes in and sits on the edge and says that um, today's not the day. Today's not the day she's ready to strip down and get into a bath. Because as we know, she has that horrible scar on her neck and on her chest. And she's clearly still um, sort of getting over that trauma, still dealing with it. Yeah, very lore friendly. And she states that she will never wear a plunging neckline, that she'll never pretty much show it, and she'll never actually magically change it. I guess those parts of the book, CDPR, uh, just kind of threw away, and they're like, nope, we don't, we're, we're going to get rid of that. Because, uh, yeah. They, we, we need hot tris. We need hot tris with only plunging neckline tris. And they're like, how, right. could we dare animate a woman character and not have them be hot as hell? No. <gasps> Blasphemy. Not have them show off half their body? <gasps> As their monocles all fall to the ground and break. <laughs> a gasp. <laughs> you have painted a vibrant picture of the CDPR writer's room. I love it. Monocles everywhere. Yeah, fully clothed sorcerer. <laughs> you put in there, oh! And they just all faint and the monocles go down. It's like 1890s London. <laughs> I guess that's who, yeah, that's who makes uh, The Witcher 3. Which are Victorians. <laughs> yeah, unlike CDPR, the show has dedicated to being accurate with Triss's character. She has that scar from the Battle of Sodden. It is a character trait that she will carry with her through the rest of the story, and it's something that she will have to come to terms with. It's trauma that she will be dealing with her whole life. After this bath scene, we're still at Eretuza, and we join Professor Stregobor, who is currently in the middle of teaching a class all about Falca. And it's at this moment that Istrid walks in and sets the story straight and defends Falca a little bit, says that Falca was actually just trying to regain the throne that was rightfully hers. At this point, we also learn that Stregobor is apparently old as fuck because he was actually around during Falca's rebellion all those years ago, and he shows us that both of his hands are bloody and missing, the wounds that he still carries from Falca's bloody, bloody rebellion. I guess this is also a way just to tie in why he hates elves, because Falca was a quarter elf, a quadroon, just like Yennefer. And I guess they can leave it up to us to decide, is he just using that as a crutch to hate it? Or is he, because he's a victim, like, oh, I've seen this before, it can happen again. Yeah, that's a great point. Either way, moving on from that, we return to Kaer Morin and... We get Brett's favorite part of the episode, baby. The aforementioned Siri montage takes place here where she is running through the gauntlet over and over and over again, failing over and over and over again. And all throughout Siri's failings here, Lambert continues to encourage her by being a massive dick. Quote, nice try, princess. Admit it. You belong in a castle, not in our keep. End quote. 
as we've established now many times in this conversation, he continues to be a giant prick. And I don't know if this is some sort of reverse psychology where he wants her to succeed, but he can't help himself. At the end of the day, he's still just being an asshole. Yeah. And I, I've said my piece on Lambert. And again, I just, I don't think it's reverse psychology and I don't think it's him being a <laughs> lovable prick. I think it's him just being an asshole because outside of, again, I don't remember where Cohen said the line or so. Cohen says something that's actually encouraging. There's nothing else there. I, this is the stuff I just don't understand. Like, I don't want to call anything bad. I just don't want to call anything, you know, good or well, what I would have done. It's not that. It's just, I don't know why they would do this, why they would make them. And did anybody bring up, like, are, are they are they too unlikable when they showed this? And it's just the stuff I just don't get what I'm supposed to get out of it. And if we're not supposed to like them, like, why are we not supposed to like the Witchers? If we are supposed to like the Witchers, then my God, that was a failure on every front. And I, it's just, it's just, it's just baffling. Again, every time we go back to care more with the Witchers, I just, I don't know exactly what to say. Yeah. It's always a little groan worthy to go back and see them continue to treat Siri in that way. Either way, in the next scene, we return to Sintra where Frangilla and General Hake are discussing this elven immigration problem. All is not well in Sintra. Francesca then shows up and General Hake walks away and the two basically discuss what the elves' purpose here is in Sintra. What are we going to do with this alliance between Nilfgaard and the elven people? And Frigilla makes her pitch. She defends Nilfgaard. She says, quote, people assume we're here to destroy the world, but we are not. We are trying to feed, to house, to liberate. You can help us, end quote. Which, as I think you joked in the previous episode, every conqueror says that shit that's so on brand. <laughs> We're here to liberate. Trust us. But ultimately, it does seem like this alliance between the elves and Nilfgaard is going to move forward. Francesca also makes her demands. She basically says that she wants a home for the elves. She wants a future for the elves, a place where they can establish themselves independently. And we also get confirmation here that Francesca is pregnant. Yeah, that was that was interesting because, again, that's something new brought up. Everything else here otherwise was absolutely, you know, lore friendly and expected. The elves in Nilfgaard have a common enemy in the north, and it would help Nilfgaard to have these. Well, I mean, I guess they're kind of guerrilla fighters. There's no Scoia'tael mentioned in the show and so, and I don't know if, if that will ever be mentioned at this point. Yeah. Because I'm not really getting that the elves are even strong enough in the show to even mount guerrilla warfare. I mean, we saw it at the end of A Grain of Truth with those spears on ropes pulling people. Like, I, I got so bamboozled by that. I was like, holy shit, that's fucking Squatel. I'm like, Squatel <laughs> is here. And then it was it was Francesca and them. I'm like, oh, wait, are they? The, wait, Francesca's not Squatel. Are they Squatel? Oh, they're not actually saying Squatel? That's like one of the coolest things. Anyway, I'm... <sighs> I'm kind of, I'm still, even finishing the season, I still don't know what to think of Nilfgaard. I still don't know what to think of Fringilla. I still don't know what to think of Kyer. Everything about it, I just don't know what to think. Like, Fringilla is a major character, like, absolutely major character, beyond bigger than what she ever was in the book. So that's it's interesting, and I like it because it's something new. I just, I'm just, I just don't know exactly where they're kind of going with it, but we're seeing this from the top. Yeah, we're going to help out. We're doing this, but then we see kind of, Nilfgaard what they did to Sintra and so you know we're seeing both sides of what Nilfgaard is which again is is very friendly to an invading conquering empire yeah that's a fair point we're seeing both the horrors of Nilfgaard if you're on the the receiving end of the Nilfgaardian spear but then we're also seeing their side of it too where Frangilla seemingly at least outwardly here to Francesca believes in the Nilfgaardian vision moving on from Sintra we join Yennefer walking through the halls of Eratusa, and she comes upon Kaihir's cell, speaking of Kaihir, and the two have a bit of a talk before she then runs into Stregobor, who, this caught me so off guard, who kidnaps her, basically, takes her to that torture room where Kaihir was being tortured by Tissaia just a few episodes ago, and... Uh, does the same thing, does like the 
fingers in the head torture trying to figure out, I guess, if Yennefer is a Nilfgaardian spy and figure out where she has been for the last month because she hasn't told anyone. Yen here admits that she was a prisoner of war to Nilfgaard. Stregobor confirms that. We get the flashbacks of her in Nilfgaardian chains. And he then tries to talk to her about how she used fire magic and how she tapped into it. It's very weird. I liked your take on it. Here in the notes, you wrote that he almost like his hatred is almost like this obsession as well with the elves and with fire magic and with Falca. Uh, <laughs> you described it as like he has this weird like Falca fetish where he like hates her, but he's kind of obsessed. With yeah, yeah, that's that's all I could think of. <laughs> Because, but yeah, I would look. I agree with you. I was so taken aback by the hand on the shoulder, and then teleported to the torture chamber, and then whoop, we're going the fingers in the skull again. And I'm like, oh god, they're going there again, huh? And yeah, it was wild. I mean, my my question after the scene was, what the fuck? Like, should he not be expelled for that? Yeah, <laughs> is he is he still going to be teaching classes about Falca after this? It's absolutely wild. Continuing. We are back with the Witchers at Kaer Morhen and Geralt and Vesemir start to share a bit of a moment here, actually. I loved this so much. Geralt is almost apologizing to Vesemir if he was ever a snot-nosed brat, which, of course, he was. All kids are at a certain age. And Geralt is finally realizing how tough it probably was for Vesemir to raise all of these boys by himself. He is now experiencing that with Ciri. But before things can get too emotional and too weepy, they get interrupted. One of the witchers runs up and says, Geralt, you need to see this. Come quick. And it turns out it's uh, Siri still on the gauntlet. How long has she been on there? Is this three scenes? <laughs> she is still running. This is now scene number three of her running through the gauntlet over and over and over again. This time, though, she's much more successful than previous tries. Nearly makes it all the way to the end before tripping up right at the finish line, unfortunately. I will say, this scene, where we see all of the witchers gathered, they're not exactly cheering Sirion, but you can see these small smiles on their faces as they see her overcome this gauntlet, finally. I got a sense that they are starting to maybe uh, accept this little girl that Geralt has brought home with him, and are actually a little proud to see her do this thing. So I, I perhaps warmed up to the witchers a little bit more here. I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. And again, maybe I'm just harsh. <laughs> maybe I'm just set in now. Yeah. Back in Eretuza, though, things are not going well for Stregobor. He's being interrogated before the Brotherhood. And this this scene is so weird. He, he does, he jumps through so many <laughs> logic hoops here and is like bullshitting the Brotherhood and somehow convinces them that Yennefer is a spy, is a Nilfgaardian spy. Stregobor's logic is almost like straight out of the Trump playbook. He says, quote, I'm not saying she's the enemy. I don't know, though. Do you? And I'm like, what? Like, what? It, it's so weird. Anyway, basically, this scene results in the Brotherhood agreeing that in order for Yen to prove she is not a Nilfgaardian spy, to prove her loyalty to the Brotherhood and to Eratusa, she has to kill Kai here? <laughs> she has to kill the prisoner? And it's a, it's a very weird scene. And after the Brotherhood is done figuring out that like that is the conclusion we're all apparently arriving at, Taseya goes to tell Yennefer what the Brotherhood has decided. And I will say this, I think, was my favorite scene of the episode. Just the emotion on display, the acting prowess here from both Miana Burring and Anya Chalotra as Taisea and as Yennefer as they talk about this is really powerful stuff because this is the moment where Taisea reveals that uh, they've known all along that Yennefer has lost her connection to magic. And Yennefer kind of finally gets to let the floodgates open and show how frustrated she is that she has lost the one thing that has defined her. Quote, tell me how to save myself. She screams at Tessaia. It's a really, really powerful moment. And I loved it. Yeah, this, both of them are great. They knocked casting out of the park. 
And to make Yen such a major character, it required hitting on that actress. And they did. Like, Anya Salatra's great. And Miana Burring is amazing. And both of these roles were greatly expanded for the show. An excellent decision. Like, honestly, put on the spot, I might think that these two might be the best part of this entire series. Wow. Is their, their characters, their interactions, everything about it is amazing. And yeah, this 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 was good. And when it happens, it, it's great. I just I, again, I hope I hope they just can do more of these. Have these moments. Have characters actually interact. Have it be slow. And then when something like this happens, it can really hit. Yeah, I thought this was a very strong emotional beat, and I agree. Moving on from the politics of Eretusa, we rejoin Geralt and Siri at at Kermorin, and we are in Siri's room. The little scratch on her arm that she got running the gauntlet. Geralt is bandaging that wound and basically talking to her about being more careful, right? This is another great sort of father-daughter moment between the two where she is pushing and wants to prove herself. She wants to work harder and train harder and really like do the things that witchers do. She wants to be a witcher, just as she said to Lambert at the start of the episode. and. Geralt has a really, really great line here where after Siri says, I want to be a great fighter, he responds, quote, I have known many who have wanted to be great fighters in my time. Do you know where they are now? In cemeteries, end quote. And I loved that. I think, again, that shows how young Siri truly is, how she's brash, she's young, she's idealistic. She thinks if she can become a good enough fighter, she can overcome her fear and Geralt has been around the block a few times and knows that the reality is fighting isn't isn't always the way to o- overcome your fears and your trauma it's a really touching moment and I, and I loved it Siri and trauma is everything about her character and it's something that they have not done a lot of they've tried like saying it but you know they do the visions and they get in there but it's at this point we don't even know are the visions bad. You know, we don't, they obviously don't think they're good, but it's the problem with adapting a book. In a book, you can have a character and you can go a page or two into their thoughts, into a vision, into what it means. You obviously can't do that in a show. You have to get, you have to show that trauma. And it's something that, again, I think they just have failed at is Siri has a ton of trauma. She is messed up. And what I hope they don't fall into is they don't fall into the Arya Stark problem. Game of Thrones book Arya Stark was a troubled, deeply troubled girl who was just needed a home and was traumatized from seeing all this family. And show HBO Arya was this badass warrior assassin. And I, I, I'm telling I'm worried that they just turn Siri into this badass fighter, which she is, but without the trauma. And that's just the biggest thing that'll worry me from this show on is they didn't learn that Arya Stark lesson and they just go for a badass woman warrior. Yeah, something that sort of just came to mind as we were talking about this is I realized all throughout the season, we don't get any more Siri having nightmares. We got that in the first episode and then it never happens again. But throughout the books, she continues to have really terrible nightmares. And I agree with you. I hope they continue to keep that in mind and show more of that, more than they have in the show thus far. Either way, this scene wraps up with her basically storming out on Geralt. They're still not clearly seeing eye to eye. And Geralt notices a crack in the wall and a tree limb kind of creeps its way out of this crack in the wall and he notices that attached to this tree limb which should remind us all of the lesson is a piece of Centrian clothing. It has the lion of Centra embroidered onto it. I do want to say, last thing about this scene I promise, shouts to the dead rat that you can see in some of the shots right behind Siri on the wall. I'm glad that she is at least putting some of that training to good use and getting rid of some of these pesky rats in her room. <laughs> oh, I, I, I see. 
I see what you mean by that. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. If you know, you yeah. know. Wink, wink. <laughs> right. Book readers know what I'm also trying to get at there, but we won't say too much. All right. Moving on. Let's wrap up this episode and this summary. In the next scene, Istrid catches up with Yennefer as she is trying to leave Eretusa in the dead of night, and he convinces her that uh, that's not a good idea. Stregobor has spies at all the exits. And she will be caught if she tries to escape. We also learned that Istrid plans to travel to Sintra and that perhaps he's actually more sympathetic to Nilfgaard than he has led on to the Brotherhood so far. In the next scene, we are back with the Witchers and Kermorin, and Cohen is actually training Siri. He's being helpful, he's being supportive, he's training her. It's awesome. Geralt then barges into the main hall here and asks Ciri about her visions. He is starting to suspect that there is more going on with these mutated monsters and with Ciri, that there's perhaps a connection. And she tells him that in her visions, she feels this pull. She feels this pull out into the, into the woods. Geralt and Ciri do end up traveling out to these woods together to investigate what her visions may be and what's going on with these monsters. It's at this point, that the Leshy shows up, the same Leshy that infected Eskel, and a fight ensues. Geralt whips out his sword, he's fighting off some branches, but before things can get too serious, a giant myriapod creature shows up and just rips this Leshy in two. R.I.P. Leshy, that's the end of that. We then jump into an action scene, Siri runs away, things happen, yada yada, Geralt eventually ends up killing it. I do want to shout out my signs here. I love to see my Witcher signs. We get a little bit of Quen action. He uses the Quen sign to throw up a shield, block one of the attacks. And he uses the Igni fire sword that you and I, Brett, are such big fans of. We get to see it here in action once again. Yeah, it was good to see old fire sword back in action. <laughs> yeah. But, but this just goes back to it's just a forced action scene. And... I will blame Netflix. I'll blame the executives. And if I can extrapolate maybe something from what the showrunner, Lauren Hissrich, said, that they have to have these in here, that they have to have action scenes, that they can't have an episode where there's nothing like that, which to me is just incredibly sad and disappointing and disheartening for what the show's going to be. And all I can hope is somewhere... In the back, right now, as they're doing season three, that she's fighting like hell to not have to do this, to be able to get more character moments, to be able to slow it down and not have to have monster of the week. And again, I may be in the vast minority. It might be this fight that got like a thousand, thousands of people to keep watching it. And maybe that's what people want. Maybe they're going after that late season Game of Thrones crowd <laughs> where it's just action, 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 action. <laughs> if that's going to be the case, then this show will not be anything special. It will be basic and unfulfilling instead of what it could be if they really hit on the character moments that are all right there for them to do. I could not agree more. This is now the third episode straight in season two that has ended on a monster fight. And at this point, it's starting to get a bit stale. So after the Myriapod scene, we jump back to the events of Eratusa, where Yen and Kai here are headed to the execution block. It's happening. There's a big ceremony. They're going to put up the monument to the 14 mages who died at the hill defending the north. The northern monarchs are here as well. We see both Fultest and Vizimir having a small conversation. Not much of substance is said, but they do name drop my boy, Dijkstra. So I'm excited that we're going to get to meet him soon. Basically, this scene wraps up after much pomp and circumstance with Yennefer choosing not to behead Kai here and instead breaking his chains, freeing him, jumping on a horse. He joins her on the horse as well, and they ride off into the dark, having escaped. Roll credits. All right, so that wraps up the summary of episode three. And with that out of the way, we're going to take a quick break. But as always, don't go anywhere because there's more to talk about. When we get back, we're going to dive into our key takeaways from this episode. We'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, folks. Let's continue with this episode and dive into our two key takeaways for today. And Brett, I'm going to hand it off to you for this first one, something we've touched on quite extensively already in our summaries, but worth touching on one more time. Yeah, and I've hit on it like you mentioned throughout the episode. But it's pretty much everything just about The Witchers. It was the number one thing I was looking forward to this season. And it's just been the most disappointing for me. And I, and I hate that that's the case. I really wanted to like it. But they just missed me. They're just unlikable. L- Lambert, Paul Bullion, I, Paul Bullion, Paul Bullion, I don't exactly know how to say it. He's the actor. He has been unbelievable in like press tours. And being out there seems like an amazing guy. But the character of Lambert, I absolutely hate. And everybody loves Lambert from the games. And even though look at books, they're not really that fleshed out. But Lambert is the Han Solo. He's that just like kind of lovable rogue that's just a hard ass. Oh, but he's that hard ass with the. He's got a good heart down there. It just takes a lot to get there. The show, there's just nothing redeeming about his character. I just, I cannot stand him on at any level. Vesemir, and I've said this multiple times on other shows, everything I've been on, everybody who has played The Witcher 3 is biased by Vesemir. Papa Vez, Grandpa Vez, oh, falling asleep. Where'd that Rapscallion Siri go? He's just this <laughs> lovable grandpa. Absolutely. And yeah, and just, but here, the, the the Witcher party, the Witcher orgy <laughs> that I brought up, when they were having that, when Geralt goes down there, I'm like, oh, Geralt's about to bust some heads. What are they doing? And he kind of does it. And I'm like, oh, there's Vesemir. Vesemir's going to set them straight. Vesemir's like smiling. Vesemir's into it. I have expected him to go grab a couple girls. Mm-hmm. And like nothing, he, I, he didn't say anything to Eskel. And I'm just like, okay, what, 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 what? I just didn't know. It, it, it just, it didn't seem consistent. And you know this because I believe she responded to your, one of your tweets. Uh, but Lauren had a Twitter thread about Eskel. Let's talk about Eskel. And she explained all this stuff and absolutely kudos and bravo to her for doing it. She could easily just be like, you know what? Fuck this shit. I'm going the D&D route. From Game of Thrones. I'm just deleting all social media. I'm just getting off. But she explains all this stuff. And she mentioned in there that Eskel broke these rules because it wasn't him. He was mutating. He broke these rules by bringing women back to Kaer Morhen. And it was disrespecting to the brothers. And I'm like, but it was it? Because nobody was protesting except right. Geralt. And right. Where in the show did we see that? Yes. And including Vesemir. And it's stuff like that that I'm like, okay, I get that. But it wasn't shown on screen. The only person that had somewhat of an issue with it was Geralt, and he really only just sent Eskel to bed without his supper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of good takeaways in that Twitter thread that Lauren Hisrick, the showrunner of The Witcher, posted. And I totally agree. Like, props to her for engaging the fan base in this way. And we'll link to Lauren's Twitter thread in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But I agree that. For the most part, a lot of the justifications that Lauren made in the Twitter thread about why Eskel acted the way he did simply didn't track or at least didn't come through in the TV show in any way. And I think one point in particular that we've actually mentioned on this show, speaking of the Myriapod and the three episodes so far ending in action scenes, she explicitly said in one of her tweets that, quote, So how could we take the growth that we need to see in Geralt, but have it have all the appropriate ups and downs and cliffhangers 
and devastation and action that modern audiences expect. And I think that's the part, like you said earlier, that was disheartening for me to hear. Apparently, the team behind this show have decided that this show needs action. And I think it's clear that for you and me, that's not exactly what brings us to The Witcher in the first place. So to wrap up this first point, I think it's clear from our discussion thus far that neither of us are huge fans of what the show decided to do with The Witchers and what the show has done with Care Morin thus far. It's a stark change from the books, but I think even taking the books entirely out of the conversation, the characters themselves don't seem to be consistent or likable in any, in any way, and that's a bit of a bummer. But moving on from that, let's jump into takeaway number two, and this one is less a breakdown of a larger theme of this episode and more of a bit of a tangent into some lore that I wanted to get into, because as we know in this scene, Stregobor's little propaganda lesson about Falca was rudely cut short by Istrid walking in spouting facts, the audacity, and I wanted to take a just a few quick minutes here for our second takeaway to actually break down the history of Falca, to talk about the lore behind Falca a little bit more, because that's a name that will become really important going forward. And of course, we're going to do it in a spoiler-free fashion. So welcome to Professor Abu and Brett's Witcher History 101. Let's dive into the lore of Falca real quickly here. So first and foremost, Falca was the daughter of the human king of Redania, Rydak, and his half-elf wife, Beatrix. At some point, Rydak fell in love with another woman named Saro and quickly divorced and banished his former wife and daughter. And so Istrid was absolutely correct that Falca came back to reclaim a throne that she believed was rightfully hers. She was the eldest daughter of Rydak. In an uprising that came to be known as Falca's Rebellion, she is said to have killed her father, her stepmother Saro, and her stepbrothers with her own hands. Whether or not that's actually true or just an embellishment of this rebellion, that has been lost to history. Now, this is where things get interesting because Vrydak and Saro had adopted an orphaned princess named Rionin, who is the child of a character named Lara Doran. And thus, Rionin is Falca's adopted sister. And during the rebellions, she isn't killed, but instead imprisoned. In prison, Rionin had two twins named Fiona and Amavet. Around that time, Falca also had a child named Adela, who she left with Rionin because she had to flee. She's the head of this rebellion. She's being hunted. She can't exactly settle down and raise this child. Falca's rebellion is eventually crushed, and Falca was burned at the stake. And with her dying breaths, she cursed everyone and their descendants, claiming that a child of her blood would bring about ruin. Let's get back to those children. All three children, Amavet, Fiona, and Adela, were raised together as siblings by Rionin. But due to her time in captivity, Rionin had gone mad and couldn't remember which child was hers and which was Falca's. So in Witcher history, there's this ambiguity of who is whose, who was actually Falca's child, who was Rionin's children. Yeah, and if I remember this correctly, it comes from Codringer and Finn finding out one thing and then being like, oh, this is it. But then in a whole other thing, Francesca says something that negates that and contradicts that. And so it's like, oh, okay, we're just, it's meant to be ambiguous. Exactly. We have two different versions of history claiming two different things, that Falca had child A or Falca had child B, two uh, opposing views on history here. Now, why is this important? Why does it matter who Falca's child was or who Rionin's child was? Why, does, why should we care about any of this? How is it relevant to our current story? Well, there's two important and competing prophecies here about a child of the elder blood. The first we know and has been referenced in the show many times, Ithlian's prophecy. This prophecy says that a descendant of Laura Doran, remember, Rionin is the daughter of Laura Doran, will save the world from some sort of calamity simply known as the White Frost. What that calamity is, we don't quite know yet. 
The second prophecy is Falca's own curse, the curse that I just talked about, where she said that a child of her blood will bring about the destruction of the world, will bring about ruin. That all sort of leads us back to Ciri, who we can infer is a child of one of these bloodlines. And sort of the big question is which one? Or are prophecies bullshit and it doesn't matter? Exactly. The, the sort of even larger question above all of that is whether Siri is even fucking tied to her bloodline. Does any of this even matter? <laughs> yeah. And one thing definitely to hit on is Lara Doran, I believe we can be made to assume was the story that Novellan told Siri with that shadow box or music box, whatever it was. Yes. And then ultimately, when it comes to a prophecy like this, if the prophecy isn't really real, in a way that doesn't matter because if people believe it to be so, then it's real. And if they believe that Siri is a daughter of Lara Doran, they will act accordingly. And good God, are we probably going to see that? <laughs> and if they believe that she's a daughter of Falca, then maybe she will believe that as well. Yeah, exactly. It sets up these questions of what is her destiny? What does her bloodline say about her? And who is she truly descended from? The show is starting to plant these seeds of this mystery with the story of Lara Dorn from the first episode from Novellin. Now, Stregobor explaining who Falca is. All of these names will start to become more and more important as we start to unfurl this mystery and try to get some answers here. But we wanted to take today's episode and this takeaway to give listeners who might be new to this universe or who haven't revisited the books in a while a bit of a refresher on these prophecies, on Ithilien's prophecy about Laura Doran, and on Falca's curse and her rebellion. So there you go. There's your history lesson, folks. I hope you took good notes. The quiz is next week. All right, Brett, let's wrap up this episode. We've already said a lot about it, but just big picture thoughts. Episode three, what did you think? So I initially wrote down that I think I liked it less than episode two, but after talking about it, while there was a lot of stuff I didn't like, there was more that I did. Mm. This series is very ambitious, and I like that. The only thing is, are they biting off more than they can chew? They have so much going on when I just don't feel they need to be. It's like they have a great thing here. They have a great thing to adapt from. They've got an amazing cast that they've hit, you know, home runs on so many of them. And it's like, oh, we got to do this. We got to bounce around here. We got to bounce around. Oh, we got to have the action scene. And these are hour long episodes and they're jam packed. But with some things, each episode has, like you said, 10 minutes or so, at least. that I'm like, fuck, that wasn't needed. Siri training. Okay, we get to see her finally start training. How long was she on that goddamn gauntlet doing the same thing? But that all that was practical. If you look behind the scenes, they built that whole thing. And you bet they could not build that and then tell some Netflix producer, oh, yeah, we got like two scenes here. It'll be like 10 minutes. They'll be, like, they'll be like, huh? No, I'll be like, no. Oh, why do you need to build this thing? Oh, it's the crux of this whole. E oh, an entire episode will basically be here. Oh, OK, OK, OK. And, that, and then they do it, you know, you jangle keys in front of those executives' faces and, they'll, you know, they'll be happy. They'll be distracted by it. As you can see, I'm definitely going to hate on the suits more <laughs> than anybody. Face The facelift uh, corporatists, I will. But all in all, after talking about it with you, I, I did not like it for sure. Uh, but it, I don't think it was as bad or as, I was a little harsh on my script. I'll say that. Well, I'm glad our conversation uh, melted your icy little heart a little bit, Brett. Uh, I, I felt similarly. I won't say that this was a terrible episode, but at the same time, I don't think it was a particularly good episode either. There was a lot of setup happening. It almost felt like a bit of a filler episode that's meant to just set up a number of plot lines and plant a number of seeds that will come to fruition later. This mystery around Siri that we talked about in our takeaway, Yen now being hunted by the Brotherhood. She is on the run from them. And of course, Kai here escaping captivity and the question of what will happen with him and his character. I think a lot of things were just sort of set up in this episode. The things I did like, we touched on in our summary. I loved that scene between Tessaya and Yen. Definitely my favorite scene in this episode. But overall, yeah, I'm in agree agreement with you. A pretty meh episode and uh, certainly not a memorable one by any means this season. 
And uh, I think we've harped on this enough, but I fully agree that this monster of the week action scene that seems to be crammed into the third act of every episode is really going to get old if it continues to happen over and over and over again. And I hope the show recognizes it doesn't need action to be good. And in fact, it can lean into its other strengths. Here, here. Willaboo, podcast or podcast, lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the path.